0: So I decided to, I booked a, a little a room in a place called Provincetown in Cape Cod. Um, and I just went away for three months. I left my laptop. That, uh, I didn't have a laptop that could get online. And I left my smartphone in Boston with my friend Shailene. And I just got out of there, right? You know, lots of things happened to me in Provincetown in those three months. But the thing that, and there were actually many changes I later realized I'd made that improved my attention, not just separating myself from the tech. But I thought by then I was nearly 40, right? i thought you know maybe i just got old right maybe that's why i can't focus my attention went back to being as good as it had been when i was 17. i could read books all day and not waver i mean it was staggering how much my attention came back
1: hello everybody you're listening to chatting with candace i'm your host candace horbach before we jump into this week's episode, I wanted to do our roundup of shout outs. So, for everyone that has bought me cups of coffee, I want to say thank you so much to Peter to chase and to zach i really appreciate all of those cups of coffee and we're going to do a couple patreon members i wanted to give a shout out to hector thomas and shanley i couldn't do this without you guys i really sincerely mean that all of your donations go directly back into the podcast so thank you thank you thank you so without further ado, before I bore you, before we even get started, please help me welcome New York Times bestselling author, Johan Hari. Um, well, Johan, thank you so much for joining the podcast. I know we have been in the works for this. So I'm really excited to finally have you on. I think all of the topics that you've covered in the past are really incredible and crucial to our conversation is what does it mean to be a, a, the best human that we can be? <laughs> and i think that your newest book is is no exception. So i kind of want to get into the conceptualization of it of lost focus. I was reading your article that you had sent me and that you wrote for the guardian and it really resonated with me because you focused on your godson and i have a young boy and i'm like if give me all of the information what's happening
2: oh, what is God, happening
1: yeah. and constantly being connected um what is that effect on our brain?
0: god yeah no the thing you're mentioning is this moment when i realized i had to write the book um oh god even thinking about it now is really throwing me off so um i've got a godson who i call adam in the book it's not his real name and um when he was nine he developed this brief but really intense obsession with elvis which was Particularly cute because he didn't know that Elvis had become a cheesy cliche. So he would like sing "Viva Las Vegas" or "Suspicious Minds" totally earnestly. He's probably the last person in human history who'll ever do Elvis like sincerely. And um, when I used to tuck him in at night, he used to get me to tell him the story of Elvis's life again and again. I tried to skip over the bit where Elvis shits himself to death on the toilet. And and um, one day I was telling this story and he looked at me really intensely, and he said. Johan, will you take me to Graceland one day right, where Elvis lived? And I was like, yeah, sure. The way you do with nine-year-olds, like you know, knowing next week it'll be Legoland or whatever. And he said, no, do you really promise you'll take me to Graceland? I was like, I absolutely promise. And I didn't think of that moment again for 10 years until so many things had gone wrong. He, he dropped out of school at the age of 15. And by the time he was 19, he was just... This is an exaggeration. Literally, spending all his waking hours alternating between apps and devices, he would be constantly flicking from his iPad to his iPhone, from WhatsApp to porn to YouTube to Snapchat. And it was almost like he was kind of whirring at the speed of Snapchat, right? Where nothing still or serious could touch him. And one day, we were sitting on my sofa just directly behind where my laptop is. I'm stupidly pointing, but obviously, you can't see behind my laptop. And we were sitting there and. W- all day he was just looking at his devices and I've been trying to get a conversation going and he just couldn't do it. And to be totally honest with you, Candice, I I wasn't much better, right? I was sitting there staring at my own devices and I I suddenly remembered this moment. I was like, we, we can't live like this. I suddenly remembered this moment all those years before. And I said to him, Hey, let's go to Graceland. And he was like, what, what are you talking about? I didn't even remember this Elvis obsession. I was like, no, we, we've just got to break this numbing routine. Let's get out of it. In fact, let's go all over the South. But you've got to promise me one thing, which is that when we get there, you'll leave your phone in the hotel, right? Mm-hmm. And he said, I absolutely promise. I could see it excited something in, in him. And three weeks later, we took off from London Heathrow to New Orleans, where we went first. And a couple of weeks later, we got to Graceland. And when you arrive at the gates of Graceland in Memphis now, this is even before COVID, There's no human being who shows you around. What happens is they give you an iPad and the iPad shows you around. So it says, you know, go left, go right, go straight ahead. And everywhere you are, it tells you about the room you're in. And there's a picture of that room um, on the iPad, right? Mm -hmm. So what happens is everyone just walks around Graceland just staring at their iPad. And I'm sort of getting more and more tense. I've tried to make eye contact with someone to go like, oh, this is funny. We're the people who travel thousands of miles and actually looked at the place we traveled to. But I couldn't get any eye contact going with anyone. And we, we got to the jungle room, which was Elvis's favourite room in Graceland. And there was a Canadian couple next to us. And the, the man turned to his wife and he said, honey, this is amazing. Look, if you swipe left, you can see the jungle room to the left. And if you swipe right, you can see the jungle room to the right. And I, I laughed, right? I was like, oh, this is funny. And then I turned and at them and they're just swiping back and forth. And I... I sort of leaned over and I said, hey, sir, there's an old-fashioned form of swiping you could do. It's called turning your head. Because look, we're in the jungle room. (laughs) You don't need to look at it on your iPad. We're actually there. And they just sort of looked at me like I was crazy, possibly rightly, and just backed away. And I turned to my godson to laugh about it, to be like, oh, this is funny. And he was standing in the corner looking at Snapchat because from the moment we landed, he could not stop. And I kind of stormed up to him and I said, look, I know you're afraid of missing out, but this is guaranteeing that you'll miss out, right? Mm -hmm. This is you're not showing up for your own life. You're not present at your own existence. And I tried to grab the phone off him, never a good idea with a teenager. And and he stormed off. And so I wandered around Memphis on my own that day. and, And that night I found him at the Heartbreak Hotel where we were staying down the street. And he was sitting by the guitar shaped swimming pool. And I went up to him and I apologized, just going through his phone and I apologized. And he didn't look up from Snapchat, but he said, I know something's really wrong, but I don't know what it is. And that's when I thought for a long time, I've been thinking about whether I should write about what's happening to our attention, partly because I could feel something weird happening to my own attention. With each year that passed, it felt like things that require deep focus, like reading a book, having deep conversations, watching long movies, were getting more and more like running up a down escalator. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like I could still do them, but they were getting harder and harder. Mm-hmm. And I saw this happening to everyone around me, almost everyone. Um, so really, after that experience in Memphis, I decided to go on this big journey. I used my training in the social sciences at Cambridge University to go on a big journey all over the world, I, from Moscow to Miami to Melbourne. I interviewed over 200 of the leading experts on focus and attention in the whole world. And I dug really deeply into their research. And what I learned from them is there's scientific evidence for 12 factors that can make your attention worse. Some of them are in our tech. Some of them go way beyond our tech. Uh, from the food we eat to the sleep we don't get. But but what I learned is loads of the factors that have been proven to make your attention worse have been hugely rising in recent years. And your attention didn't collapse. Your attention has been stolen from you by these really big forces. But once we understand them, which is what I tried to do in my book, Stolen Focus, we can begin to see the solutions. And I saw the solutions all over the world.
1: That part that you describe at the hotel is really heartbreaking to me when, when I was reading it. I was Cause I, you you can't help but put yourself in those shoes and you're like, man, as a parent or as a caregiver, you must automatically be like, I've failed somewhere, right? Like, how could, how did this happen? Um, And obviously with the, the consequences of like, of dropping out and it's a much, a much bigger effect on your actual life simply than just like being disconnected from human relationships. And it's interesting too, that everywhere there's a screen because they say you can only experience something once. So whether you're at a concert or you're visiting a museum or a historic site or you're having a moment with your child, if you're too busy recording it, you're actually not getting the same biofeedback as you would if you were were present and experiencing that. So yeah, you might have captured that moment that you can now replay, but you never actually fully experienced it in the first place. And how sad is that when we really think about it in, in real terms of, Um, of again capturing moments with a child for example like you think you're doing something that's beneficial because now you have archived this moment but it's almost a lie because you weren't there in the beginning
0: that is such a good way of putting it i wish i thought to put it that way in my book you're absolutely right what we've got is a crisis in being present right Mm -hmm. and that is going across the whole society we've got Mm -hmm. a profound crisis in being present um and if you're not present and presence is the heart of life right if you're not Mm -hmm. present at your events. What what have you? We've all had that experience of you know go to a concert. I remember I was at the last night Elton John ever performed at Caesar's Palace, and about a third of the audience didn't didn't fucking look at Elton John. They're just filming oh it. And you want to go? God. No one wants to see your shitty video of Elton John. There's no, literally no. a million videos of Elton John on YouTube, the, the the and and they're all better than the shitty one that you're filming, right? Exactly. You, you show up for your life. So I think what we have to understand is why, how we got into this place where we're not showing up for our lives and how we can get out of it. Because if you look at these deep structural causes, we can begin to build solutions. And I went to places that began to build solutions. I also think you're getting a really important thing, which is this is bad enough for adults, but it's really a catastrophe for young people. Because if you don't form attention when you're young, it's going to be harder to form it when you're older. So obviously a quarter of my book, and Focus, is about Children, what we can do, and actually, I'm really optimistic about this because I met people who embody the sol- who are enacting the solution for what we can do with children, and it's mm-hmm. free and it really works. So we, I'm sure we'll get to that later in the conversation. But particularly on childhood, I'm really optimistic that we can build the solution here.
1: Well, that makes me really ecstatic because I've said this in a couple of uh, recent podcasts because they always tend to get a little doomy and gloomy. But I say like you have to be optimistic, especially if you're a parent or you're a caregiver, because it's your responsibility to to kind of extend hope to them. If you say 100%. Up, I think. then what's the point?
0: And, and the truth is we're not fucked, right? We're really not. So I'll give you an example of one of the 12 causes that I write about in Style and Focus about the way that we've... So I think one of the causes of our attention crisis is that we have psychologically and physically confined our children. And mm-hmm. one of the heroes of the book, who you should totally have on your podcast, Remind Me, I'll intro you, is a woman called... extraordinary woman named named Lenore Skenazi, who both identified the problem, but far more importantly, built the solution, right? So Mm. there's been a huge increase in children's attention problems in recent years. For every one child who was diagnosed with serious attention problems when I was seven years old, there's now a hundred children who've been identified with that problem. Um, I can give, give more evidence about why we know children's attention has got worse, but I'm pretty sure that's a no-shit Sherlock insight that pretty much everyone listening is, is is down with. If not, I can go through more of the evidence for you. Um, I don't think it's a, there's many things going on here. The way our children eat has profoundly changed, and the food we eat is deeply damaging their ability to focus. Children now sleep far less than they did. In fact, children sleep 85 minutes less than they did a century ago, a staggering change. The leading expert on sleep in the world, Dr. Charles Seisler at Harvard Medical School, Said, even if nothing else had changed, just that one thing would have massively caused an attention crisis. There's loads of factors, but I think there's one really big one and that we can build a solution to quite quickly. So, I don't think it's a coincidence that children's attention problems have exploded at the same time as there was a highly specific change in the nature of childhood. So, let's think about Lenore's childhood. Lenore grew up in a suburb of Chicago in the 1960s. And what that meant for her and for everyone who, who grew up at that time is from when she was five, she left the house on her own and she would walk to school on her own. It was about 15 minutes walk away. She would generally bump into all the other kids because every kid walked to school on their own from when they were five, right? When she got to the school, there was a busy road. So there was a 10-year-old boy whose job was to help the five-year-olds cross the street, right? She would go in, school would finish at whatever it was, 3 p.m. And she would just wander around the neighborhood freely with all the other kids And then they would find their way home when they were hungry, right? So that is what childhood looked like for all of human history, with almost no exceptions. Children played freely with each other. And then, in the space of one generation, that ended. By the time Lenore was a mother in the 1990s, you were expected to walk, even your teenagers, to the school gate and wait there and be waiting again when they get out of school at the end. Um, In fact, by 2003, only 10% of American children ever played outdoors without an adult supervising them, ever. And I think of that 10%, they got like 12 minutes a week. So basically no children played. So we've talked a lot about the damage to childhood during COVID and it's absolutely right we talk about that. But actually, we put our kids under house arrest long before COVID, right? Childhood became a thing that happens behind closed doors under adult supervision. And it turns out that childhood we've lost contains loads of things that are essential for children to be able to focus and pay attention to give another no shit sherlock one exercise children Mm -hmm. for their brains to develop need to run around professor joel nig one of the leading experts on children's attention problems in the world who i interviewed in portland explained to me you know when children run around they get more brain connections one of the best things you can do for kids who can't focus is let them run around and then come back right Mm -hmm. again i don't think people I, i think it's so obvious to people they know it but we took all that exercise away. Even more importantly, when children play together freely, as Dr. Isabel Benke, the great Chilean scientist, has shown, they learn how to pay attention, right? They learn what they find interesting. They learn how to persuade the other kids to find their stuff interesting or fail to do it. They learn how to be brave, all sorts of things that are essential for attention. They learn how to wait their turn. And if an adult is just standing over them, telling them what to do all the time, they don't learn those skills, right? Right. Um, So I think most people listening are going to see that what I've just said is true, uh, Mm -hmm. but it's easy to talk about problems, right? The reason Lenore is the hero of the book is not because she identified that problem, but because she built the solution. Lenore leads a group called letgrow.org, which I really recommend every parent and grandparent listening goes to. And so Lenore saw this problem, and at first she just tried to persuade parents as individuals to let their kids play outside more on their own. Um, So she would Mm -hmm. often say to them things like, what is something that you loved to do when you were a kid that you don't allow your own children to do? And yeah, people come up with so many things, right? I used to ride my bike in the woods. I used to, so many things. Um, but she learned quite quickly, it doesn't work to just persuade people as isolated individuals. Because if you're the only parent who lets your child go out, the kid gets scared. You look crazy. Actually, often people will call the police, right? So it just yeah. doesn't work to do it on your own. So, what she does, what her organization, LetGrow.org, do, is they go to whole schools and whole communities and persuade the whole community together to give kids increasing levels of independence that build up to playing freely outdoors like all children did in the past.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: And I think of all the conversations I had for Stolen Focus, I had so many amazing conversations about all of the 12 causes of our attention crisis. But I actually think one of the two or three most moving conversations I had was with a 14 year old boy who was part of a let grow program in in Long Island so I spent a lot of time with let grow programs and this boy this was a big strapping strong boy he was taller than me right and his parents until this program began had never let him out of his house on his own ever they wouldn't even let him go for a jog around the block i asked him why and he said um because there were, the phrase he used was Because they're afraid of all these kidnappings, right? Mm -hmm. Your child is three times more likely to be hit by lightning than to be kidnapped. And in this area where he lived, um, to give you a sense of what it was like, this is a town in Long Island where the olive oil store is across the street from the French bakery, right? There's never been a kidnapping there. And he had a level of fear that would be appropriate if he grew up in Syria, right? And then this Let Grow program began. Everyone in the community started to give their kids increasing levels of independence. He started to play outdoors with his friends. I asked him what he did. He said, first, they just play ball games in the street. But then he said, and he said this real awe in his face. He said, we went into the woods, even though our cell phones didn't have reception there. He said, that was a a miraculous thing. (laughs) And he said, and I said, what did you do in the woods? And he said, we built a fort. And Lenore was with me that day. And when this boy left, she said to me, Think about all of human history, right? Young people, particularly young men, had to go out and hunt. They had Mm -hmm. to seek. They had to build things. And then, in one generation, we took that away from them. And those boys, given a tiny little sliver of freedom, went into the woods and built a fort because this is so deep in our nature. And that Mm -hmm. boy, seeing him describe it, and so many of the other kids in Let Grow programs, maybe this sounds a bit, I don't know, melodramatic. It felt like watching these boys come to life right? Mm -hmm. I thought about how many kids I know who don't ever get to explore anything except on Fortnite and World of Warcraft. We can hardly be surprised our kids become obsessed with these things if it's the only place they ever get to explore anything, Mm -hmm. right? Um, And yeah, so I think I go through at the end of Stolen Focus lots of the things we need to do to get our attention back. But one of the key things we need to do is we need to restore a human childhood that our ancestors would recognize as a childhood. Does that ring true to you,
1: Candice? 100%. And you have to think of like the long-term consequences, right? Because now you're creating generational problems if you are taking mm. away these fundamental aspects of, of development, like exploring and being out in nature. I guess, do you know the origins of, because I remember back in the 90s when you had that big spike of those um, those commercials that were kind of telling parents and using fear-based propaganda mm. to get your children inside and fencing off playgrounds and not walking your kid to school anymore. It's like how much evidence was there for serious, I guess, abductions and is that still there? Like is the world more dangerous than it was? And then are there more consequences of letting go of the reins?
0: Yeah. So violence, Professor Stephen Pinker has shown this, this is counterintuitive because of we see so much violence on television. But violence has been massively declining for the past 100 years, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And it's not declined because we lock away our children because violence against adults has also massively declined and we don't lock away adults, right? Mm -hmm. So there's a big debate about why that's happened. He wrote a very good book about it called The Better Better Angels, uh, which is about figuring out why that happened. And there's lots of competing theories, but the fact is very clear. There's been a huge fall in violence. So to lock away your kids because you're afraid... I mean, if I said to you, "I will not let my child play outside because I'm afraid my child will be hit by lightning," mm-hmm. you would regard me as insane, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. But your child is three times more likely to be hit by lightning than to be kidnapped. So mm-hmm. this is a risk that is almost nil, right? And that was that's been the case for the whole of our lifetimes, right? Mm-hmm. Um. So and that was the case when Lenore played outside, right? So it's not that's the decline in violence is not the result of locking kids away. Already, violence had massively declined by then. Um, and it's declined even further since against both adults and children. So out of fear of something that is a negligibly tiny risk, mm-hmm. what we've done is we've imposed certain harm on our kids. We've made it harder for them. To, we've made them struggle to pay attention. We've made them obese. We, yeah. you know, you've got the certain, not the certainty, but the massive increased likelihood of harm, which is happening all around us. You know, mm-hmm. a third of American children are obese. Um, you know, that's gone
1: that, up 50% since the pandemic, which
0: exactly. is
1: wild.
0: So we're just talking about staggering levels of obesity, staggering levels of attention problems, mm-hmm. p- in part because we've, we've, we've taken away um, disability, we've taken away childhood, essentially, yeah. um, uh, against a negligibly tiny risk. you know, It's partly about uh, helping people to understand that. But also, Lenore says, and I think she's absolutely right, She used to just try and tell people the statistics and the risk, and it just doesn't work, right? It just Mm. doesn't work. Our brains don't our brains are not very good at calculating statistics. If they were, no one would play the lottery, right? And I've just (laughs) come back from Vegas. Vegas would not be packed every day of the week if we understood. Statistics and odds, right? That's just not how we think. She said what works is not telling them statistics to not be afraid. What works is letting them see their kids grow in competence. She Mm. says the thing that works is they let their kids out. They're so nervous and their kid comes back sweaty, having run around, telling them about, I saw a squirrel. I, I got a bit scared because I climbed a tree, but look, I did it, right? Mm-hmm. Seeing how, what parents need to see is that their children are competent, right? Mm-hmm. What we're doing is we're making our children incompetent by mm-hmm. not, because it's small things that build confidence that make you, ca- this is why college students are so fucking anxious, right? You, if, you never, if you've never had the experience of, a little bit of risk, a little bit of danger. And of course, we know anxiety itself independently damages attention and focus. We've all had the experience of are anxious. You can't pay attention very well, right? So this is one of the 12 factors I think we really need to deal with. And I would argue every single school in the United States should have a let grow program. This is Mm -hmm. free. This is the lowest hanging fruit. This is something that all Americans could agree on, right? I don't care if you're the most liberal or the most conservative, All Americans, and one of the good things that might come from COVID, this has been a horrifying tragedy, obviously. One of the good things that might come from this, from COVID, is we've just seen what locking away our children does to them. And everyone knows it has fucked our kids, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So let's think about, okay, if locking away our kids this much has harmed them, maybe the extent to which we were locking them away before COVID harmed them, now we can set them free again right mm-hmm. and we can do it in a controlled way we can do it in a way that minimizes risk because the risk of what we're doing now is enormous right um mm-hmm. the risk of setting them free is low whereas the bank gains of setting them free are enormous mm-hmm. so yeah you should totally letgrow.org. everyone listening please go to it i go through other ways in which the way we live is harming our, our harming ways we live are harming our attention i think the way we designed our school system is a, if you if this is not the fault of teachers who never wanted it to be this way If you wanted to design a school system that would kill children's ability to focus, you would design the school system we currently have, particularly for boys. We've designed a school system that makes boys feel incompetent and like they can't do anything Mm -hmm. and bored all the time. Mm -hmm. Um, We can design a different school system. There's all sorts of these big structural things. But yeah, so there's lots in terms of children. And obviously then a lot of the book is about adults and what we can do for our own attention as well.
1: No, I mean, that program sounds incredible. So we use the Montessori school right now, um, which which is very similar. So it's free play and it's not a lot of adult intervention and it's teaching them um, to kind of get like have pride in your work internally instead of uh, seeking external validation, which crosses over to how adults are right now, because you everything we do is for likes and retweets and engagement. So we're getting our sense of purpose and fulfillment. Extrinsically, and that that's not going to work because at some point, you know, you you can't control those things. The only thing you control can can control is your inner state. um So, I mean, it, it starts from childhood, but it absolutely kind of like ripples out, if you will. Um, no, you're
0: you're totally right. And thinking and about then, those. Hmm, sorry, go oh no,
1: go ahead. No, go ahead.
0: Well, thinking about those reinforcements and what they and that craving for online reinforcements, what that's done to us. Obviously, I talk a lot in the book about the different ways in which that's harmed our ability to focus. But let's start, if it's okay, Candice, with just one that I think everyone listening is going to think, shit, that's playing out in my life today, right? So I went to MIT, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, to interview one of the leading neuroscientists in the world, a man named Professor Earl Miller, amazing man. And he said to me, look, there's one thing you've got to understand about the human brain more than anything else. You can only consciously think about one or two things at a time." That's it. This is just a fundamental limitation of the human brain. The human brain hasn't changed significantly in 40,000 years. It's not going to change on any time frame you and me are going to see. You can only think about one or two things at a time. But what's happened is we've fallen for an enormous collective delusion. The average American teenager now believes they can follow six or seven forms of media at the same time. So what happens is scientists get people into labs, not just teenagers, people of all ages. And they get them to think they're doing more than one thing at a one at once, right? Mm-hmm. And they always find the same thing, which is that when you try to do more than one thing at a time, you can't. What you do is you juggle very quickly between those tasks. Y- your consciousness kind of papers over it. You don't realize you're 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 do- you know you genuinely think you're doing more than one thing at a time, but you're not. And it turns out that juggling comes with a really big cost. The technical term for it is the switch cost effect. Um. It turns out when you try and do more thing, more than one thing at a time, your ability to do all those things rapidly degrades. You will do all the things you're trying to do much less competently. You'll make more mistakes. You'll remember less of what you do. You'll be much less creative about what you do. And when you hear that, it feels like quite. I think a lot of people listening will be like, "Yeah, I get that," but it's quite a small effect, surely, right? I remember thinking that was not that big, right? How big is that? I will give you just one example of many. It's a small study, but backed by a much wider body of evidence. Hewlett-Packard, the printer company, got a scientist in to study their workforce, and he split their workers into two groups. And the first group was told, just do your task, whatever it is, and you're not going to be interrupted. And the second group was told, do your task, whatever it is, but you've got to answer a heavy load of email and phone calls. So pretty much how we all live now. And then at the end of it, the scientist tested the IQ of both groups. The group that had not been interrupted scored 10 IQ points higher than the group that had. To give you a sense of how big that effect is, if you and me got stoned together now, Candace, if we smoked a fat spliff together, our IQs would go down in the short term by five points. So being distracted in the way most of us are is twice as bad for your intelligence as getting stoned. At least in the short term, there's a bigger debate about if you smoke cannabis in the long term, obviously. But in the short term, you'd be better off sitting at your desk, getting stoned and doing one thing at a time. Than sitting at your desk, not getting stoned and being just distracted and juggling tasks all the time, right? Mm-hmm. Clearly, obviously, you'd be better off neither getting stoned nor being distracted. But uh, <laughs> and 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 this is a huge effect. A different study by Professor Larry Rosen found that if you receive eight text messages an hour, which doesn't sound like much to me, it lowers your brain power for the main thing you're trying to focus on by thirty percent—staggering yes. amount, right? And yes. um, so this is why Professor Miller at MIT said to me, "We are living in a." perfect storm of cognitive degradation as a result of all these interruptions all this distraction and 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 so you can see how one of the things that interrupts us and distracts us is this craving for rewards right we're trained oh shit, what, what are people saying about me now on on instagram how many likes did i get what oh someone's post tagged me in a picture right you can see how that's mm-hmm. one of many things that train us To seek out those constant interruptions that are so degrading our ability to focus.
1: So when you talk about the task switching and not being able to focus on more than one to two things at a time and that kind of just being a fact based off of the professionals and their research. I find that a lot of people feel like they're the exception to the rule, mm. so they might be like, well, sure, this brilliant guy at MIT <laughs> and this one thing, but he's never seen me work or he's never seen me <laughs> struggle, and I I can do it because I'm a high performer. How do you get through to those people? Because I I find that we attach our abilities t- to our identity. So, like, I identify as this very high functioning person that can multitask, and that's why. I'm a C-suite level person at my company. Um, So there's obviously a lot of ego attached to that. And I feel like anytime there's ego attached to anything, it's really hard to break through that. So how do you create change? Because you could do regulation all day long, but if someone is fighting it, it's not going to help them. Do you know what I mean? I think it's a
0: really good point. I think it's a bit like, weirdly, the point about Lenore and... Intellectually explaining it to people only gets you so far. They have to actually see it. So I would say to those people who say, I'm really great at multitasking, and I used to say that, uh-huh. give yourself a week where you don't do it. Mm-hmm. And and honestly, come back and tell me whether your focus got better and whether your performance mm-hmm. improved, right? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. one of the things I did for the book, as you know, Candice, is I went completely offline for three months. I had no internet mm-hmm. for three months. Sounds After- amazing. <laughs> it's Sounds funny because I came back from Memphis, this, this trip with my godson, and I was just... So horrified, and I was so tired of being wired. You know, I'd been basically online for fifteen years by that point. I just—I was in a lucky position. The film rights for one of my previous books had sold, so I had some money. Mm-hmm. And I thought, "Fuck it, I, I've had enough of this." So I decided to—I I booked a, a little a room in a place called Provincetown in Cape Cod, um and I just went away for three months. I left my laptop. I didn't have a laptop that could get online and I left my smartphone in Boston with my friend Shailene and I just got out of there, right? I literally fled them on a boat, right? And, (laughs) and, you know, lots of things happened to me in Provincetown in those three months, but the thing that, and there were actually many changes I later realized I'd made that improved my attention, not just separating myself from the tech. But I thought by then I was nearly 40, right? I thought, you know, maybe I just got old, right? Maybe that's why I can't focus. My attention went back to being as good as it had been when I was 17. I could read books all day and not waver. I mean, it was staggering how much my attention came back. And then I remember just before I left Provincetown, the the very last day I was there, I went to, uh, what's it called? Long Point, which is where the lighthouse is. And I looked back over the whole of Provincetown and I was like, I'm never going to go back to the way I was. Why would I go back? This is amazing. The joys of focus are so great. I, I would just say to anyone listening, Think about anything you've ever achieved in your life that you're proud of, whether it's setting up a business, being a good parent, uh, learning to play the guitar, whatever it is. That thing you're proud of took a huge amount of sustained focus and attention. And when focus and attention break down, your ability to achieve your goals breaks down. Your ability to solve your problems breaks down. And when you get your focus back, your ability to achieve your goals and solve your problems so drastically improves. So I remember thinking, I'm never going to go back. I got my phone back and within a month I was 80% back to where I'd been. Mm -hmm. Um, And later I learned how to build a lot of those improvements into my life at an individual level. But to be honest, I only really understood why I'd gotten so much worse when I went to Moscow to interview a guy called Dr. James Williams, who had been at the heart of Google, um, was horrified by what they were doing to people's attention. We can talk about why, if you like, quit and became, I would argue, the leading philosopher of attention in the world. And he said to me, the mistake you've made by going to Provincetown is, I'm sure it was very nice for you, he said, but the mistake you've made is, it's like thinking the solution to air pollution is for you personally to wear a gas mask, right? Mm. I mean, I'm not against gas masks. If I lived in Beijing, I'd wear a gas mask. It's not a solution to air pollution, right? We've got to actually solve the problem. And at the moment, this is going beyond what he said now, but at the moment, what's happening is our attention is being destroyed by very large forces. It's like someone is pouring itching powder over us all day. And then that person is leaning forward and saying, hey, buddy, you might want to learn how to meditate. Then you wouldn't scratch so much. To which the logical response is, well, fuck you. I'll learn to meditate. That's great. We need to stop you pouring itching powder on me, right? So Mm -hmm. there's sort of two levels at which we've got to tackle all of these 12 factors that are degrading our attention. The first level is, I think of them as defense and offense, right? We've got to defend ourselves and our children as much as possible. And I go through Mm -hmm. dozens of things we can do in the book to do that. I'm passionately in favor of those things. I also want to level with people. Those things will improve your attention. I'm strongly in favor of them, but they will only get you so far. Because we're living in what Professor Joel Nigg said we might want to ask, whether it's an attentional pathogenic environment, an environment that is undermining the ability of all of us to pay attention, and once you understand that, you realize, okay, we've got to fix the environment. That can sound very fancy, but I talk about very practical ways we can do that and places I went to that have begun to do it.
1: Yeah, because that does sound very overwhelming. And then it also sounds it sounds very insidious too when you say the intentional, right? The Like that yeah. descriptive, um, which it absolutely is. I'd love to... So when you mentioned um, that guy at, at Google, I would love to kind of get into what Google is doing specifically, because I think what a lot of people do is they'll look at specific platforms and they'll say, this is ruining people's minds. This is ruining people's minds. This is the reason that you're addicted to whatever. And I'm like, it's across the board. It's it's all technology. If you can access it on your phone or your laptop, it is trying to monetize you. And they're all, they're all guilty. And I was listening to a couple of podcasts with Google specifically, and I didn't realize At at this moment, Google is pretty much the internet. Even if you're using other servers, like it all kind of has to go through Google first.
0: Yeah. So just before, because I'm I'm so conscious of what you said, and I'm really glad you said it earlier about hope. I just want to give an example about hope that I think will help us to think about Google because it can sound like fucking hell, we're trapped in the matrix then, right? And I want to give a very specific example that I think will help us to understand the solution to the problem we're about to talk about. So I think you're probably too young to remember this, Candice, but I can just remember that there used to be that used to be normal that people, in fact, the, the dominant form of gasoline in the U.S. and Britain used to be leaded gasoline, right? Uh, so you'd put lead in, into your car, and then that lead would be pumped out into the air, and everyone was breathing in lead, right? Mm-hmm. And a bit before my time, it used to be normal that people painted their homes with leaded paint,
2: mm-hmm.
0: and then it was discovered lead fucks your brain. And it particularly mm-hmm. devastates children's ability to focus and pay attention, right? They actually knew about that going all the way back to the 1920s. There was an amazing scientist called Dr. Alice Hamilton who figured it out. But the lead industry funded a kind of bullshit denial kind of science, uh, mm-hmm. pseudoscience that said, oh, no, no, lead's fine. It's just that people need to dust their homes a bit more. But by the time you got to the 70s and the early 80s, um, it was just undeniable that lead was having this terrible effect on people's attention. So a group of moms, they were mostly moms, got together and said, why are we allowing this? Why are we allowing a for-profit company to fuck our children's children's brains, right? Maybe they didn't swear as much as I did, but that was the gist of what they said, right? Um, So what did they do? It's really important to notice what they didn't do. They didn't say ban all gasoline. They didn't say ban all paint, right? Mm Because paint and gasoline are good things they said, let's ban the specific aspects of the paint and the gasoline that are harming people's attention. Really important to bear in mind for when we get to the internet debate, because we don't want to ban all this stuff. Loads of it is great and good. Mm -hmm. We want to deal with the specific aspects that are damaging our attention. And what happened with those moms? They fought, they fought for years, they succeeded. As a result, we're not exposed to lead, anything like the same amount. And what's the outcome? Um, According to the Center for Disease Control because of the reduction in exposure to lead, the average American child is three to five IQ points higher than they would have been had we not banned lead, right? An amazing piece of progress, a real model for us. Something was identified in the environment that was fucking up our ability to focus. And so we got rid of that thing from the environment, right? It can be done. So let's go to Google, (laughs) for example. Uh, So another one of the heroes in my book is Tristan Harris, who is an extraordinary person. I'm sure you know his work, he's become very famous. I feel glad because I got to know him before he was famous. (laughs) Um, uh, And I still know him now, he's my friend. Um, So Tristan, if you want to understand what Google's done to our attention, there's many aspects of this, but to give you an example of a story Tristan told me years ago that really haunts me. So Tristan worked on Gmail, which is owned by Google, was developed by and is a Google product. He worked on Gmail really early in the development of Gmail. And they were trying to figure out how to get people, more people to use Gmail, obviously, but also they particularly wanted to get people to use Gmail more often. I'll come to why in a little while. So they're trying to figure out how can we get people to use it more often. And one day, sitting in the Googleplex, and one of Tristan's colleagues said, I've got an idea. Why don't we make it so that every time someone gets an email, their phone vibrates a little bit? Everyone said, that's a good idea. Let's do it. A week later, Tristan was walking around San Francisco. And he just hears this, this buzzing everywhere, this noise, like a kind of weird dystopian bird song. And suddenly he realizes, shit, we did that. That's us. That's my colleague sitting next to me. We, we did that. Wow. And then he realized oh, that's happening all over the world, right? He later calculated it. That one decision had led to 10 billion interruptions to people's day every day across the world. 10 billion. Think about what we were talking about before, but how being interrupted damages your attention. Professor Michael Posner discovered that if you're interrupted, it takes you on average 23 minutes to get back to the level of focus you had before you were interrupted. Mm-hmm. But loads of us now never get 23 minutes spare, right? So Tristan is like, horrified. So he's like, shit. So he starts to try to persuade people inside Google, this is really bad what we're doing right? We're really We're not being responsible custodians of people's attention and focus. But what he, and often his colleagues were very sympathetic, not least because all of them were having their attention fucked up as well. You know, there was one moment, Dr. James Williams, who also worked at Google, spoke at a tech conference. In fact, the people who design the things that we all use every day. And he said to them, if there's anyone here who wants to live in the world that we're creating put up your hand now and nobody put up their hand right so they don't want to be in the machine that they're building either but what's really important here is to figure out okay how do we solve this because Tristan tried to persuade people on the inside she's totally understandable he was on the inside it seems logical i'm at the heart of the machine why not try and persuade the people here who better right to persuade mm-hmm. but Tristan kept bumping up against something And to me, this is the heart, understanding this is the heart of understanding what is the equivalent to the lead in the lead paint, right? What's the thing we need to fix, the primary thing we need to fix to deal with this, which is one of the 12 factors that are right about in and Focus that are harming our attention. And the key thing to understand here is that they didn't listen to Tristan, not because they're evil people, they're not evil people, right? Not because they're like James Bond villains, they're not. The reason they didn't is because of their current business model. And if you understand the current business model, you understand why they're damaging our attention and how we can start to put it right. So anyone listening, if you open Facebook now, if you open TikTok now, if you open any social media app now, that app starts to make money straight away for two in two ways. First is really obvious. You see ads. Okay, everyone listening knows how that works. The second way is much more important. Everything you do on these apps is scanned and sorted by their artificial intelligence algorithms to figure out who you are right so let's say that you click that you like I don't know um uh, bet Midler Donald Trump, and you tell your mom you've just bought diapers okay so the algorithm's gonna figure out if you're a man who click that you like bet Midler you're probably gay if you click that you like Donald Trump, you're probably conservative and if you're talking to someone about buying diapers, you've probably got a baby right I mean I don't know. so there's gay conservative with baby right that's what they've figured out they've got tens of thousands of facts like that about you, right? Mm -hmm. And they're building up those facts for two reasons. One is to sell information about you to advertisers, to sell your attention to advertisers so advertisers can target you, but also to figure out what the weaknesses in your attention are. What are the kind of things that keep you scrolling, right? Mm -hmm. So the longer you scroll and the more often you pick up your phone and look at these apps, the more money they make. So every time you pick up your phone, And look at these apps, they start to make money. And every time you put them down, that revenue stream disappears, right? So all of their uh, AI, all of their algorithms, all of this genius in Silicon Valley is geared towards one thing, figuring out how do we get Candice to pick up her phone as often as possible and scroll as long as possible? How do we get Candice's kids to pick up their phone as as often as possible and scroll as long as possible? That's it. That's all they care about. As, As a corporation, that's all they care about. Just like the head of KFC doesn't matter if he's a nice guy or an asshole. All he cares about is how much KFC did you eat today? That's it. That's his job, right? So the whole machinery is built around getting you to, about invading your attention and getting you to scroll as long as possible. Don't take my word for it. Don't take the word of dissidents like James and Tristan. Listen to the people at the heart of Facebook. Um, Sean Parker, one of the biggest initial investors in Facebook, said publicly, we designed Facebook to maximally invade your attention we knew what we were doing and we did it anyway. God only knows what it's doing to our kids' minds, right? That's what he said. We know from Facebook's own leaked, te- leaked research, they know they're destroying our collective and political attention. They know. Their own data scientists are telling them that, right? Mm-hmm. So obviously I was thinking a lot about, well, how do we solve this? Because it can feel really overwhelming when you hear that. But Aza Raskin, who is, invented a key part of how many websites work, told me, look, if you want to understand the solution, it's really simple. for this part of it, you've got to ban the current business model, right? A business model that is based on figuring out the weaknesses in your attention in order to hack them and sell your attention to the highest bidder. That is just inhuman. It's like the lead in lead paint, just ban it. And loads of other people in Silicon Valley said that to me. And it took me a long time to get my head around it. So I was like, well, hang on a minute. Let's imagine we do what you're saying. And the next day I open Facebook, would it just say, sorry, everyone, we've gone fishing? He said, of course not. What would happen is they would have to move to a different business model. And absolutely everyone listening has experience of the two different business models that they could move to. One is subscription. We all know how Netflix and HBO work. You pay a small amount, you get access. Or alternatively, think about the sewers. Before we had sewers, we had shit in the streets. We all got we people got cholera. It was a disaster. So we all pay to build and maintain the sewers, and we all own the sewers together. Right? Whatever city Mm you are in, you own the sewers along with all the other citizens of that place. Mm -hmm. It may be that, like we want to own the sewage pipes together, we want to own the information pipes together because we're getting the equivalent of cholera for our minds, for our attention. But whatever alternative business model we move to, the key thing to understand is all the incentives for social media then change. At the moment, all the incentives are finding out the weakness in your attention in order to hack it and invade it.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: But if you move to one of these different business models, that's not the incentive anymore. Suddenly, they don't want to hack and invade your attention to sell you to advertisers. Suddenly, they're like, oh, Candice is our customer now. What does Candice want? it oh, turns out candice wants to be able to pay attention let's design our app to heal her attention not hack her attention oh candice wants to meet up with her friends offline let's insert a button that makes it much easier for her to do that right because it turns out people feel better as we all realized during covid when we look into each other's faces rather than when we stare at each other through screens there's all sorts of, it's unbelievably easy to redesign facebook and all the other apps to facilitate attention rather than destroy them but you have to get the incentives right right and these companies are not going to do that on their own any more than the lead industry was one day going to go, you know what guys I am. Um, I think we've made enough money. Let's stop fucking up children's brains. Like, They're never going to do that. They had to be made to do it by a movement in the same way. Cause at the moment we're in a race, right? Mm-hmm. Loads of the 12 factors that I talk about in style and focus that are invading people's attention are on course to get worse. Right. If we don't stop them, you know, Paul Graham, one of the biggest investors in Silicon Valley said, um, the world will be more addictive in the next 40 years than it was in the last 40. Think about how much more addictive TikTok is than Facebook, right? Mm
2: -hmm, mm
0: -hmm. On the other side of this race, we've got to have a movement of all of us saying, no, no, you don't get to do this. No, this is not how we want to live. No, you don't get to invade our children's brains. No, you don't get to invade our brains. And it requires a a shift in consciousness. We are not medieval peasants begging at the court of King Zuckerberg for a few little crumbs of attention from his table. We are the free citizens of democracies and we own our own minds and we can take them back, but we're going to have to fight for them.
1: I couldn't agree more. I would push back a little bit and say that I do think a lot of them are Bond villains. I think a lot of it's intentional and I think that you turned a you turn the human race into a product without our consent so i yeah. have a little bit more animosity. No, you're
0: probably right i think they become bond villains at the point at which they know they're doing it and they don't stop right it right. wasn't they didn't at the start they didn't right. it, it, this, it was not their intention to have these effects i mean it sort of was with facebook actually so maybe i'm probably <laughs> being too nice and generous about them but it's not but you find this even with like You know, for one of my previous books, I interviewed like hitmen for the deadliest Mexican drug cartel who'd killed loads of people. And even people are rarely, I think it's evil things rarely stem from people being sort of deliberately wicked. Like that's, Mm -hmm. it's generally they're pursuing some other goal that Mm -hmm. they think is good and they end up doing something harmful. But I agree with you. The point at which they know they're doing it and they carry on doing it anyway. Well, then they are villains, right? And then they are responsible for their actions. And then, then, and they know they're doing it. We know because we got all this leaked information from Facebook mm-hmm. now, thanks to the heroic work of Francis Hagen, who le- made the very brave decision to leak it. Yeah, we, they know what they're doing, right? They know very well what they're doing.
1: Yeah, and I think it's interesting because there's obviously multiple angles and and solutions as to how to go about this and create the world that you want to live in. I tend to be more libertarian and like less regulation, less government across the board is generally a good idea. I do like how you mentioned um, like the sewage system yeah. because that does make me think of DAOs, which you start to see right now with with platforms like Minds. So they're trying to become a dollar in the process of doing that, which ends up being user owned, and the users are voting, and you actually can get paid based off of your engagement, and if you decide to sell your data. So it gives you a lot more agency and as to how you participate in social platforms. Um, Their CEO, I think, is amazing, and I really hope that that he does well. But I think it comes, and I know that some people aren't in favor of the whole personal accountability um, thing. But to me, it's kind of like a mix between personal accountability and the collective. When you were talking about the moms in the lead, right? So if we all say this is bullshit, we know what's happening, and then you leave these platforms. And you go to ones that actually care about the users like minds and you support that those systems and the other companies like Twitter won't have a base. They won't have anything to profit off of.
0: I have a lot of sympathy for that. But I also think I think you're right. that There's two levels at which we've got to do this. Right. There's all sorts of things we can do as individuals and people who want to leave these platforms. I give them, you know, and develop platforms built around different principles. I have a huge amount of sympathy for. I think in terms of libertarianism, I think what's interesting about this is we can build really broad coalitions about this. Because, you know, um, I'm not aware of any hard... You know, the most super hardcore libertarian doesn't think we shouldn't have a sewage system that's collectively right. owned. And right. the most hardcore libertarian doesn't think we should legalise lead poisoning again, right? So right. there are yeah. certain, you know, even really, really... I mean, you'd have to be a total abolish the government anarchist. I mean, there are some, and some of my yeah. friends, in fact. You know, it's not... Yeah. No disrespect <laughs> to them. But I think we there are certain things that we we... Almost everyone agrees the government should do some things. There's some people who say... Uh, the government should do very, very little, and that's right. a perfectly legitimate position, and I have lots of friends who take that position. But even the people who say very, very little would say, well, sewers getting poison out of the air are pretty good ones. Okay. And I would argue, and other people would disagree, and it's a perfectly legitimate debate. Dealing with these factors, it, I would put now in the category, I, I think it's pretty close to lead poisoning. And it's you know, it, it, if there are things that are so profoundly degrading our attention, but you're absolutely right the fight for that sometimes it's framed as and you're not smartly not doing this sometimes it's framed as there's two ways of thinking about this is either individual responsibility or collective action and i always say to people Obviously, we need both. I mean, it's obvious, right? It's, it's bizarre to set them again. And collective responsibility is a form of individual responsibility, right? Like mm-hmm. collective respons- collective action only happens if lots of individuals come together and do it. It's exactly. not like, I'm not saying wait for some political messiah to deliver it to us. That will never happen, right? Yeah. The, the, if you think about those moms whose kids were being poisoned, the way they took individual responsibility was by acting together, right? Mm-hmm. So I don't, I think your instincts and my instincts are right. These are not separate things, right? Mm-hmm. They're, they're, I mean, well, they're separate to some degree. Obviously, I'll give you an example of a purely individual act that I recommend everyone doing. These guys should so be paying me commission. I promise you, I'm not be, the product I'm about to mention. I'm not getting any money for plugging this, but um, I noticed their sales have massively gone up since I started talking about them. So, over in the corner of the room there, um, I have something called a K safe. It's a plastic safe. You take off the lid, you put in your phone, you put on the lid. You turn the dial and it will lock away your phone for anything between uh, five minutes and a whole, a whole day, right? Mm-hmm. I will not sit down with my partner and watch a film unless we both imprison our phones. I will not let people come round for dinner unless we both put our phones in the phone jail. Um, I write four hours a day. I imprison my phone then. On this laptop, I have an app called Freedom. Uh which locks away, which cuts you off. It can either cut you off from specific websites, say you had a problem with Twitter or Pornhub or whatever it might be, it will shut you out of them, or it can shut you off from the entire internet for however long you tell it to. And once you've done it, you can't get it back. When there's <laughs> nothing you can do. And um, so those are two examples of like purely individual forms of personal responsibility that I take every day, and I'm passionately in favour of. But again, you can sort of see how the individual responsibility interacts with collective responsibility when we think about another layer of this. So loads of people listening will have heard me say what I just said, that I put my phone away for four hours a day. And they're going to think, well, fuck you, I can't do that. My boss might text me, right? At any minute of the day or not, I can't do that. I get fired. Screw you. it. doesn't sound like lovely advice. It's like a kind of taunt to them, right? Mm-hmm. And there's a solution to that, that, that I think has to come collectively. So in France in 2018, they had a huge crisis of what they called le burnout, which I don't think you need me to translate. And the French government was trying to figure out why so many people were getting burned out. So they set up a kind of inquiry to figure it out, an investigation. And one of the things they discovered is that 35% of French workers felt they could never stop checking their phone or email because their boss could message them at any time of the day or night. And if they didn't answer, they'd be in trouble. Um, And and you can see what what a big change that is in the economy. right? I remember when I was a kid, The only people who were on call were doctors, and they weren't on call all the time, right? Uh, Whereas now, almost half the economy is always on call. And you can see, I can give those people all the lovely self-help advice in the world about you want to sleep more, unplug, you'll feel better, your attention. They can't do it, right? So the French government, under pressure from kind of collective movements, introduced a really simple legal reform that deals with a big part of this. It's called the right to disconnect. Mm -hmm. And it just gives every French worker two rights. The first right is you have a right to your work hours to be legally defined in your contract. And secondly, you have a legal right, unless you're being paid overtime, to not check your phone or email outside those work hours. So I went to Paris before the plague struck to talk to people. Just before I was there, Rent-A-Kill, the um, big pest control company, got fined 70,000 euros for trying to get one of their workers to check his email an hour after he left work. Now you can see how that's a thing, a collective thing. I mean, you could have companies start to offer that as an inducement to people as well because there's a competitive labour market at the moment. But you can see how that's a collective change that frees people up to make the individual changes they want to make. So you've got those both those levels. So a lot of people, if they were given a right to disconnect, would be able to use the case safe, would be able to use um, you know, freedom in a way they can't at the moment.
1: hmm Do you think part of that's cultural, though? Because I've heard that, People have brought in people like um, like Simon Sinek, for example, to come and talk to their employees and talk about an employee-led company and creating a better work environment and for it to be less take, take, take from from the leaders in that in, in those companies. And that it doesn't end up working because I guess maybe specifically in America, we're just so competitive that the employees don't listen. So, you might even have a benevolent leader or CEO, and he's trying to create this healthy space for people. But even if you were to pass something like the right to disconnect, you would still have other people that were like, I'm going to see this as an opportunity and take advantage of, and I'm still going to be available after work. And then that possibility is thus going to make the people that, even though legally protected, have the right to disconnect, they're still going to be available 24 7 because now they lost their edge.
0: I think it's partly, I think that's a really important point. Uh, I think it's partly about one of the things we have to do in the culture, you're right, that part of it's cultural, we have to challenge the conception of productivity that we currently have at the moment. Because our concept of productivity is, and this is in my head, right? I'm, I'm not saying standing above this. It's very deep in our culture. The productive person is the person who works all the time, right? Mm-hmm. If I get to the end of the day and I've done 12 hours of work and I'm exhausted. I get a little Puritan rush. I'm like, oh, i worked really hard today. I've been productive. But actually, all the evidence shows that is a terrible way to work. Just purely if the only thing you care about is the outcomes for your work, and I think we should, of course, care about other things, but let's say that was the only thing you cared about, even if that's your only, the only way you measure your life, it's a really shit way of, of, of doing your work, right? And it's interesting. We all know that. Guy called Professor Jeffrey Pfeffer, who's a professor of organizational management at Stanford, one of the leading experts on organization in the world, said to me, At some level we all know that. Because ask any sports fan, we're speaking, you know, two days after the Super Bowl. Ask any sports fan, do you want your team to go onto the pitch exhausted, having worked 12 hour days every day in the week leading up to the Super Bowl? Of course not. You'd be an idiot if you thought that, right? You want your team to go onto the pitch well rested up for the game. And, and Professor Pfeffer said to me, why would it be any different with the rest of us, right? That actually working yourself to the point of exhaustion is not the way to be productive. Actually, so you think you're getting the competitive edge if you're the one who's, I'm going to be available all the time. Actually, it's about a cultural change where both you and the boss know the person who's available all the time, who never rests, never unplugs, never sleeps, that's actually your least productive worker. That's not the worker you want. That's not right. the kind of worker you want. That's the worst thing you want, right? This is one of the reasons, by the way, why the US has very low hourly productivity compared to Germany where people work fewer hours but are much more productive in the hours they do work, right? Mm -hmm. So you can see how, I think you're right that for this to happen, we have to understand that the way we work is completely counterproductive, right? Mm -hmm. Hard work is a really good thing. I work really hard. You work really hard. I'm passionately in favor of hard work. But hard work beyond the point at which you become productive is self-defeating work, right? Mm-hmm. And, and I saw this. It, it's really interesting. I went to a really fascinating workplace in New Zealand. There's a guy called Andrew Barnes. You should also have him on your podcast. He's a great person. So Andrew um, was worked in the financial sector here in London for years and years. And if you picture like the 1980s, those guys who were screaming at each other across the stock market floor going, uh-huh. sell, sell. He was one of those guys, right? And he used to get to work at 7.30 in the morning and he would leave work at 7.30 at night. And in his world, you know, you were a fool if you got to work later than 7.30 and you were a pussy if you left before 7.30, right? So he used to, half the year, he didn't even see the sun because he would leave in the dark and get home in the dark. He had no relationship with his children. His first marriage fell apart. And Andrew was smart enough to realise that I don't want this life. So he left. He went to Australia and New Zealand and became extraordinarily successful. Businessman in Australia and New Zealand, but he never forgot those years of sort of darkness, right? And one day he was on a, he, he one of the businesses he owns is called Perpetual Guardian who run Wills and Trust, very successful business. And one day Andrew was on a plane um, and he read an article in a business magazine that showed that the average worker is actually only focused on their tasks for three hours a day. So they're sitting at their desk for eight hours a day at least, but they're actually only focused for three hours a day. And he was like, well, this isn't a good deal for anyone. The worker's life is passing them by. They're not doing the things they want to do. And it's not a good deal for me because they're not doing their work. What would happen if we did this differently? So he did a kind of back of the envelope calculation. He figured out part of the problem here might be exhaustion and overwork. If I gave my workers one extra day off a week, but I paid them the same, so I paid them, the same as I pay them for five days, but they only had to work four days. If in return, they focused for 45 minutes better a day, then, you know, I've made up for the loss, right? So very boldly, he gets the whole company on a a conference call and he says, Hey everyone, you've only got to work four days now. No cut to your pay. His head of HR literally fell over. So we're going to do this an experiment for three months. Let's see what happens. Mm-hmm. so they did it and the results were monitored by the university of auckland business school and i went to new zealand to interview these people i spent i interviewed everyone who worked for their office in a town called Rotorua, which is a slightly weird town that smells of farts because they've got a sulfur problem but apart from that very nice and, and it was fascinating to talk to the people there and to look at the scientifically measured results so this at first seems very challenging they achieved more in four days than they had in five right? It wasn't just that they achieved as much, they did more. Almost everywhere where they've done a four-day week experiment, they found similar results. Microsoft in Japan, their productivity went up 40% when they moved to a four-day week. Uh, Toyota in Sweden, they produced 120% of what they produced in four days than they had in five, right? Lots of other examples. I think for precisely this reason, right? That you've got to challenge the conception of productivity that we have. This concept of productivity, the exhausted worker is the good worker, Mm -hmm. is just wrong. There's lots Mm -hmm. of scientific evidence for that, and at some level we know it's true. But you're right; it's hard to get out of the competitive ratchet where you feel like if you're the one not doing that, you're falling behind. Mm -hmm. And this is why we have to really deeply challenge these ideas, and why it's easier to do it if we all do it together than if you sort of feel like you're the only person who stepped out of the race. But this is another blessing of COVID, right? We've seen that the way we work can enormously change, right? I remember talking to Andrew Barnes, who did the New Zealand experiment. I obviously saw him in New Zealand before COVID. And then I remember interviewing him about three or four months into COVID and him saying to me, if you had said to the leader of a bank a year ago, you can send all your workers home, every single one of them, and your bank will still function just as well, they would have thought you were completely crazy, right? Right. Mm-hmm. but look it happened right so one of the things covid has taught us is that we can really change the way we work in enormous i don't think we're ever going to go back to working in offices the way we did right
2: probably
0: not. Yeah, which to yeah. me i think is probably a good thing we have to do it well and i don't think 100 remote working is a good idea either for for a lot of businesses i mean maybe there's somewhere it's a good idea but yeah i, I think we've really learned oh god we, you can actually change lots of things and see what happens
1: Mm-hmm. No, I think that's again that's one of the silver linings of COVID as well. So they're um at least in the U.S. the job market is is down. You can't find employees yeah. anywhere. But what people aren't talking about is that entrepreneurship is actually up. So it's yeah. not like these people just disappeared. They just didn't go back to work. So they're kind of creating exactly. the life that they want. They are creating their own hours, their own work environment. Um, and I think that they're you know they're taking charge of. Of how much they they have to be available to anybody. It's so
0: exciting, right? And that, mm-hmm. the, and and to me, it's I really care about entrepreneurship and innovation. And you know, if you look at all these twelve factors that I talk about in style and focus that are undermining attention. If you want an innovative population, you've got to have a population who can think deeply and pay attention. And I think that one of the things we've been doing is undermining entrepreneurship and innovation by just having people who are adult. If you look at anything, whether it's scientific invention, business invention, they all come from deep thought and contemplation, right? You need some periods where you're speedy and busy, but you need times when you can think deeply. The average Fortune 500 CEO only gets 26 minutes a day without being interrupted, right? Mm -hmm. That's a disaster for business innovation, right? So you can see how restoring attention through all these things, whether it's sleep, the way we eat, so many of the factors that I write about, stress, dealing with them boosts in the long term, innovation and our ability to, to, to be entrepreneurial, which is, you know, one of the crucial engines of our society.
1: Again, I think it's like, how do you tackle how do you tackle the problem? And I think again, it, it comes down to the individual level and the yeah. and the collective. And I think unfortunately, we as human beings, we have to feel enough pain to want to to start the change Mm, and even get involved in the conversation so it's like with anything else like you get sick enough and then you change your diet Mm. like you don't really think about it if you can be one of those very rare people that can down all this processed food and you have no ailments you're Mm. not going to think i have to change anything Mm. But Mm. people you're like this is making this is poisoning me and i have to look at my food so
0: Mm.
1: um you know i I had a you know it's so funny candace
0: i had a (laughs) you saying that reminds me of a real low point in my life um (laughs) On Christmas Eve 2009, it's so sad that it was Christmas Eve, I went to my local KFC in the afternoon. And um, I remember going in and I said my normal order, which is so disgusting I won't even repeat it. And the guy behind the counter said, oh, Johan, I'm really glad you're here. It's like, all right. And he went off behind where they fry the chicken and he came back with all the members of staff and a fucking massive Christmas card in which they'd written, to our best customer. And everyone had written like, personal messages to me and one of the reasons my heart sank is i was like this isn't even the fried chicken shop i come to the most right how can this be <laughs> happening to me but um, and that was a point that did make me sort of change but one of those moments where you're like oh something's gone wrong here right but, <laughs> but i think you're right that there's a thing about pain can motivate change and i think most people listening to this podcast can feel the pain of not being able to focus properly, right? You mm-hmm. can feel this is diminishing our lives. Um, and what I want to say to people is, it's not just you, right? This is happening to almost all of us. and And we've got to deal with this. And together as individuals and collectively, we can deal with this. We don't have to tolerate this. This is not like the weather, right? This is not just some random thing that happened to us. This is the result of specific changes that are relatively recent, right? Mm -hmm. dr james williams the guy i mentioned before said to me you know the axe existed for 1.4 million years before anyone thought to put a handle on it the entire internet has existed for less than 10,000 days right we Mm -hmm. can deal with these factors that are fucking our attention they're relatively recent um they're not that powerful compared to big forces that human beings have taken on before we can deal with this but we have to understand what's happening and then we have to build the solutions. And, and I've seen the places that are building the solutions. They're not science fiction places, right? I've been to them. We can deal with it, but we've got to, we've got to change our consciousness. and We've got to understand what's happening.
1: Mm-hmm. No, well, I don't want to take up too much of your time. So this was amazing. Do you want to tell the listeners where they can find your book and follow you in any ways that they can support you?
0: You know, it's funny. I got in trouble in a podcast a while back because um, I was interviewed by uh, this guy who was about 50. And he said at the end, he said, what's your Facebook? And I said it. And he said, what's your Twitter? And I said it. He said, what's your Instagram? And I said it. And he said, what's your Snapchat? And I said, I am a 43-year-old man, right? The only 43-year-old man on snap- men on Snapchat are certainly pedophiles. <laughs> and and he didn't laugh. And uh, Because he didn't laugh, I sort of leaned into the joke. And I said, you know that show To Catch a Predator, where they catch pedophiles? The next season of To Catch a Predator should be they just go up to adult men in the street and say, what is your Snapchat handle? And if they have one, just immediately arrest them, right? He didn't laugh at all. Later, I I thought it was a bit weird. Later, I looked it up and um, he's a 50-year-old man with quite active on Snapchat. I was like, oh dear. So I accidentally accused him of being a pedophile. Not ideal. But uh, I still think it's slightly sinister. But anyway, uh, anyone who wants to follow me on social media, I don't look at it that much, but I I tweet, but I don't read back. Um, They can go to uh, the book's website. It's stolenfocusbook.com um where they can see where to get the audio book which i read myself they can see where to get they can listen for free to loads of the audio of the experts that we've talked about um what else am i meant to say it, or if you go to my website it's j-o-h-a-n-n-h-a-r-i.com you can also learn about my previous books you can learn about the tv series i made with samuel L. jackson the fix which you can watch on roku uh and lots of uh, you can watch my ted talks about addiction and depression So yeah. Um, I think that's all i meant to plug i'm trying to think my publishers tase me if i don't mention other things but i think those are the main things that i'm meant to they give you me this ridiculous blurb that i'm meant to read out but i can't say it, it makes me sound like an absolute twat <laughs> so uh yeah brilliant oh candace i really enjoyed this conversation thank you so thank much
1: You, yeah thank you thank you
0: hooray brilliant
1: well that's it for this week's episode if you enjoyed the podcast please share it with a friend two or three and if you haven't hit that subscribe button and leave a five-star review. If you have time, I would greatly appreciate it. It is the number one way to help me with charting and showing up in the algorithm. So I really appreciate anything you can do to help me on this podcast journey. And I'll see you next time.